as you know, I think I didn't know the president. I met him twice in my life up to that point. And uh, I spoke first and said that his overwhelming preoccupation and what would define his presidency is whether he would be successful in preventing another Great Depression. Nothing would be possible without that. And as I was making this case, which seems self-evident to me, he interrupted me and said, I'm not going to be defined by what I prevented, merely by what I prevented. Of course, I understand that's essential, but we have to have an agenda that goes beyond that. I think in, you know, in complicated problems where there's huge uncertainty, you can't be sure about the alternate outcomes. You need to have people comfortable with debate. Again, not paralyzing debate, not debate as an excuse not to decide, but debate as a way to get you to think through more carefully the hierarchy of choices you face and their, and their relative benefits. Welcome to Straight Talk a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Tim Geithner. Tim served as the 75th Secretary of the Treasury for the first term of President Barack Obama's administration. And between 2003 and 2009, he served as President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He now serves as president of Warburg Pincus, a global private equity firm. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Working with you during the financial crisis was one of the great blessings of my career. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Now you had a truly global upbringing with two remarkable parents. By the time you went to college, you had lived in Africa, India, and Thailand. Talk about how that global education shaped you, what you learned from your parents. Uh, great to be with you, Hank, of course. And, and um, I had the most amazing experience working with you in the crisis, too, and have huge admiration for you. My father worked for the Ford Foundation for 30 years or so in the development business. And as you said, I grew up in um, formative years of my life, half my life before I went to college living in mostly in Asia at that point. And, you know, it teaches you a lot about the world, about the diversity of human experience. And it gave me a chance to look at my country through, in some ways, the eyes of others. And I got to see the tremendous impact the U.S. had on the world, both for good and sometimes for not so good. When I was in India, the war between Pakistan and India uh, was ongoing. It was the sort of the height of the Cold War then. I was in Thailand in the shadows of the Vietnam War. And that drew me, I think, to want to work in policy and maybe want to work for my country. Yeah, just amazing. By the time I went to college, I had to cross the Canadian border to take a canoe trip, but that was it. And it, uh, I had to learn everything later in my career. Now, you speaking about careers, you've had really an amazing career. Beginning at Kissinger Associates, then joining the Department of Treasury as a civil servant in 1988, making the leap to Undersecretary for International Affairs at the tender age of 37, becoming the president of the New York Federal Reserve, and ultimately becoming Treasury Secretary for uh, President Obama. Talk a bit about how your career unfolded and what attracted you to Treasury. You know, it's sort of embarrassing to say this, but, you know, I, I really felt like I had no long-term plan when I was in college or graduate school. I wasn't really sure what I was going to end up doing. I had this great experience, my first job out of graduate school, working for Henry Kissinger for his consulting firm and writing for him about Asia, principally. But that made me, that helped me understand that I, I didn't really want to write about policy. I'd rather be part of doing it. 
So I spent some time looking at what was the what were the parts of the executive branch, the government that would be most interesting and compelling. And I was drawn to Treasury because it had a great reputation for talent and for the ethic of the senior civil service. It had a meaningful international component, you could say mini diplomatic corps. And it had a hugely respected role in economic policy, international economic policy. So that that's what drew me to Treasury initially. But when I went, you know, I thought, you know, I might do this for a few years, see how it turned out. And I just had the most terrifically compelling group of people, you know, maybe deeply, you know, hugely optimistic about my country because these were very ethical people, very competent people. They were deeply motivated about what the right thing to do was. And I kept having the experience of being asked to do something new and interesting that seemed to matter to me. I love being part of something larger than myself. And I kept staying just because there was always something new that was neat, but I had no long-term plan. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, Tim. I, I like to hear you describe that. You know, my career took a different path, but very similar. And, you know, I guess there are some people that immediately know what they want to do, but I've always been a little bit skeptical of career engineers, you know, those that want to plan every step, as opposed to those that focus on doing something that's interesting, keep doing it if they keep learning and finding it interesting, do a good job on what's in front of them, and one thing leads to another. And uh, I think uh, you see that in many people's careers. So now let's talk, you know, a lot of talk about transitions. Now, you had to begin working with President Obama right in the midst of the financial crisis. So there wasn't a normal get to know each other transition. You know, I had a, a year with President Bush before the financial crisis hit. But what was it like working with President Obama? Give us an anecdote that our listeners can relate to. I mean, I have a tremendous admiration for him as a decision maker and a leader. And I'll give you two examples. The first conference call we had during the transition, which was with the vice president-elect, the president-elect, Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff, uh, Larry Summers and me, was a discussion about what the economic agenda of the new president would be. And as you know, I think I didn't know the president. I met him twice in my life up to that point. And uh, I spoke first and said that his overwhelming preoccupation and what would define his presidency is whether he would be successful in preventing another Great Depression. Nothing would be possible without that. And as I was making this case, which seems self-evident to me, he interrupted me and said, I'm not going to be defined by what I prevented, merely by what I prevented. Of course, I understand that's essential, but we have to have an agenda that goes beyond that. That was interesting. I thought uh, audacious in some ways. Interesting. And it tells you a bit about you know, what happened those first six months in some sense at that moment of great optimism about what was possible. And that optimism got sucked out of the administration relatively quickly. A second example is um, right after I was confirmed, I met with the president, the vice president in the Oval Office, also with Larry, to have a discussion about what the strategy would be for the next stage of the financial crisis. And, you know, at that point, things still felt very fragile. There's a huge number of people who thought the system was still on the verge of collapse. The economy was still shrinking at accelerating rate. And we had a discussion about whether we were going to, in a sense, wait to see how this played out in the financial system, wait to see whether the huge number of measures already put in place and the fiscal stimulus coming, things that you were central to uh, doing, uh, Hank, and on the financial sector, whether to see whether they on their own would be sufficient and whether we could sort of not drift, but adopt a more cautious stance and the hope that we could ultimately grow out of it. We debated that strategy with a choice of whether we should take another step 
to try to put the financial system on a much stronger path, put the crisis behind us. And he was interested, he didn't hesitate. You know, he asked some good questions as he always did. He listened to us debate the options, but he was very decisive and he said, no, let's do the hard things early and let's take the political cost, let's take the political hit for doing that early uh, because I don't wanna have this hanging over us and be a drag on it. So those, those are two examples of what he was like. You know, like very smart, knew what he did not know, was not confident, too confident where he shouldn't be confident because uh, didn't come from a base of knowledge in that, but penetrating questions, wanted to debate among people who disagreed, wanted to be exposed to the alternatives, but wasn't paralyzed by that process, was willing to make a decision. And I, I know what you were recommending because you knew, you kept saying you need to act with overwhelming force, right? And so that's terrific. So talk a little bit, and let's talk a little bit about financial crises, because throughout your career in government, you've had the dubious privilege of dealing with one financial crisis after another, Mexico, Asia, Russia, and of course, the 2008 financial crisis. I remember, you know, sort of smiling when I heard Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, saying that Tim was present at all the crises, but he didn't create the crises, the crises created him. So what are some of the common threads you've seen in all these crises, and how do the lessons of these prior experiences apply to the one we're facing today? Yeah, I mean, all crises are different, people say. But, you know, they, they do require, the extreme ones require pretty similar uh, solutions. I mean, you know, my experience was uh, just repeated examples of people confronting a crisis and not really knowing what to do, what would work, having to feel it away and running against a huge number of political constraints that stood between what was sensible to do and what was possible to do. And I had that experience over and over again through the arc of the emerging market crises. And I watched it in Japan in the early 90s, too. But it did help illustrate for me a bunch of core uh, principles. You mentioned one of them just a minute ago, which is that um, when you're at the edge of the potential collapse of the financial system, a crisis so severe that it risks a great depression-like outcome, then you know you have to err on the side of overwhelming force of, of doing too much. Only the government, the central bank at that point can stand between survival and collapse. And you have to recognize that early and throw as much at it as possible. And if you do that, and I think we demonstrated that, you demonstrated that, and Ben Bernanke, we demonstrated that if you do that forcefully with some sensible design things, you can come out of it pretty quickly. You know, we were growing again in six months from the bottom of the financial crisis. And you can demonstrate that the taxpayers can earn a reasonable return, not just in the economic benefits of preventing disaster, but in terms of um, getting repaid for the benefits they provided to the financial system. So I had seen a lot of examples of good strategy and bad strategy in the previous crisis. Of course, the U.S. has seen nothing like this since the Great Depression. There was no memory in the U.S. establishment of what it took in a financial crisis because it had been so long since we'd seen a major panic. But I felt lucky in the sense of like scars, early scars of uh, understanding how devastating these things can be, how costly it is to wait and dither and try to drift through things how expensive it seems, both politically and economically, to do enough to save you from disaster, but that the returns can be very high uh, to a more forceful, aggressive strategy early. Yeah, well said. Now, you know, one of the things I've noticed in working with some very successful leaders, and you're one of them, is that they all have different strengths and weaknesses 
different attributes, but they have one thing in common. They surround themselves with terrific people. They put together good teams. And uh, you and I were both blessed to have some great people on our teams during the financial crisis. What qualities did you look for in the people you relied on in the heat of battle? Well, I learned a lot from watching you. And I, you know, I'd worked for some really, I thought were excellent models of decision-making in Bob Rubin and Larry Summers. And, you know, what I, what I try to do is to have people around that table where you make these hard choices who are, uh, trust each other, who are confident enough, secure enough that they can disagree. They can push back against you. They can try and talk you out of the dumb stuff and um, who are willing to change their mind and who understand how much uncertainty there is in making choices among the hard problems. And so that's what I try to do is just to create a group of people who are obviously needed talent and experience, but that's not really enough. You need people who are curious and skeptical, can change their mind, but still decide and still do things and can debate things openly and be comfortable thinking through the hard things you can't really be certain about. So that, that was that, I think, in, you know, in complicated problems where there's huge uncertainty, you can't be sure about the alternate outcomes. You need to have people comfortable with debate. Again, not paralyzing debate, not debate as an excuse not to decide, but debate as a way to get you to think through more carefully the hierarchy of choices you face and their, and their relative benefits. So um, what sorts of people did you want to avoid? <laughs> yes, you're leading the witness. <laughs> I, I used to I used to have a simple rule, which is uh, no peacocks and no jerks. That was one rule. Uh, but uh, let me just give one other one, which is very important, which I know you admire too, which is that you know you need people who uh, know what they're for, not just what they're against. There are people who are incredibly smart people who can all they can do is just to point out the perils and the flaws and the uncertainty in any choice, and that's valuable to have, but that's not enough. You need people to be able to choose. I felt, you know, I always said, I loved it, your term peacocks, and I use showboats, but you want to avoid those. And the other thing is you want to avoid anybody who's getting ready to run for election because <laughs> political office, because let me tell you, they're going to have to do some unpopular things. And you and I both saw the problems with that. So now let's talk about some of the more recent things. You founded and secured the endowment for the program on financial stability at the Yale School of Management. You lecture, you serve as a chair. Talk a bit about your work there. What's your mission and are you pleased with the progress so far? This was initially conceived as, in my mind at least, as like a war college for decision-making in financial crises, where we would bring people from central banks and finance ministries around the world to talk through uh, how you decide what to do. And it's grown into what is going to be an open, expert-curated online platform that provides a, a sort of a comprehensive set of cases on all the types of interventions that governments do in financial crises, both in the crisis of 0809 and, of course, in this crisis. And the purpose of that is to, you know, what stands between what you need to do in a crisis and what people actually do? Uh, because the record of governments in financial crises is really just terrible, just a graveyard of mistakes, catastrophic mistakes. And... Some of it is just the politics are terrible. And you know, people view any intervention that's effective as, as a rescue, un, unjust rescue of the, of the venal. But part of it is it's just frankly, a lack of knowledge, a lack of memory. Uh, you know, there's the terrible crisis happens to individual countries rarely, but it happens across the world on a, like a fallingly frequent basis. So you need to find a way to build a body of knowledge that's more accessible to people to solve the 
engineering problems of financial crisis. They're not rocket science kind of problems. They're problems amenable to practical solution, but you need knowledge about how to do them. And so we wanted to make sure that our successors didn't go through what we went through, which is to have to figure out a way to make up uh, and design from scratch a bunch of programs that we never we had no experience in doing. And so I think this is a very powerful, very valuable public good resource for the practitioners who face future financial crises and for the academic community in helping sort through, you know, what can work, what might not work, what's more effective, what's less effective. And you're getting great take up from people around the world. So it's attracting the right people. So Tim, I'm gonna to turn to another type of crisis because in addition to your work on financial crises, you must like crises because you now work on the global migration crisis as co-chair of the International Rescue Committee. Describe the International Rescue Committee for our listeners. The IRC was uh, formed in the shadows of World War II. Uh, Albert Einstein was one of the initial founders. It was an early and one of the most active resettlement agencies for refugees from war-torn Europe. And today it's one of the largest refugee resettlement agencies in the world and one of the largest humanitarian relief organizations in the world. As you know, the world's um, you know, come a long way in reduction of poverty, but the level of people displaced by famine, by climate change, by war, by deprivation, is stunningly high today, still growing, way outstripping the response of governments and the humanitarian community. What this organization does is try to help people transition from crisis to um, some more durable way they can earn back the dignity of living in a place they can they can call their own. Yeah, I, I remember one of my uh, former bosses, John Whitehead, had been a uh, chair or co-chair of the organization, and he would go spend a, a week or two there every year and avoid just, you know, heart-rending stories and photographs. Now, it seems like every time we listen to a news report, there's another, you know, really heart-rending story of human suffering. And it's in some ways seems like such a hopeless problem. What is it going to take to make progress here and alleviate this crisis? Well, you know, I think you have to appeal to the how should you say it, not just the moral imperative in helping humankind, but try to appeal to the practical, the economic, the strategic imperative that all countries have in the welfare of others. You know, the pandemic's a good example, the climate change is another example where, you know, there's just problems humanity faces that can't be solved by individual countries. And you can't expect the poorest countries of the world to be able to solve on their own. So I, I don't know what the right mix of imperatives are. In some ways, the moral imperative should be enough. But I think you can make the practical benefits to the United States, for example, of being as we are today, we're a very substantial provider of resources. And I believe we're gonna be able to restore the US to what had been throughout much of our history in the post-war era and before a major refuge for the refugees uh, of the world. So Tim, I'm now gonna turn to China because you and I spend a lot of time talking about China. You've spent a lot of time in China. You ran the strategic and economic dialogue with China when you were treasury secretary. Today, as we both know, and I think most people know, this is a particularly fraught relationship. We both agree that how the US deals with China is going to shape the geopolitical landscape for the foreseeable future. So what are we getting wrong here and what should we do differently? I'm a little less worried about China's strengths and even China's ambitions than I am about our own challenges, both economic and political. And I think if we can find a way to restore some capacity to govern 
and improve the competence of Americans in the you know fairness and viability of our system and our economy, then I think we'll be in a better position to manage the you know the challenges of this messy world we live in, even even those that come from China. But China is a much more powerful country, and it's got ambitions and aspirations. It's still feeling its way through, still shaping. And uh, the reality of China's strength means that we're going to have to find a way to a balance of power, a balance of interests, a balance of obligations that acknowledge that dramatic change in relative power. It's just, it's unrealistic for Americans to expect us to go back to a world of, let's say the early eighties or the early nineties, just not, not plausible, not realistic. And I think we also have to recognize that are just, you know, deep limits to what the U.S. can, even the most well-designed U.S. policy incentives uh, leverage can produce in terms of change in China as a whole. I don't, I'm very worried about this. I know as you are, um, but I don't think we're past the point of no return. I think that we have the ability to try to get things on a better, on a more realistic, more viable, less scary uh, kind of trajectory but it's going to require some abandonment of illusions by Americans. And it's going to frankly require some change by China too, because China's managed to outline a set of ambitions and interests in the world that are are threatening to the balance of stability. And it's done that without really defining what it really wants, what it wants to achieve. So I think China's going to have to obviously make some adjustments to it in this process, but I don't think we're past the point of no return. And we have a lot of common interests at stake and, uh, I think we have to find a way to figure out how to expand those common interests so we have a better way of dealing with the tensions that we're going to face inevitably. Yeah, I agree. It's right to be cautiously optimistic and be pragmatic. And I really believe we need to define where we're going to compete, where we're going to cooperate, and when there are irresolvable differences, how we're going to manage them. And it's, it's as simple as that. But politics sure complicate that both here and there. So... And I think you started to answer this in my last question, but given all the problems at home and abroad right now, if you were the new treasury secretary for uh, the incoming president Biden, you would have a daunting agenda. So what would be your biggest focus? Well, I think you still have to get through the pandemic. I mean, you know, you can sort of see the, how this ends at some point, but the end is still ways off and, uh, still uncertain in timing. And there'll be a lot of damage between now and then unless you do another round of very forceful efforts to give people a bridge through this. And so I think that's very important. But of course, that's not going to be enough. If we do that well, and we have a vaccine that's effective, widely distributed, available, then we'll come out of this, I'm very confident, pretty resilient, and we'll heal the scars relatively quickly. But we'll still be left with a huge number of other challenges. You know, we're still living in a country today where the quality of education you have, the quality of healthcare you get or can afford, you know, overwhelmingly depends on how uh, rich your parents are. It depends on the color of your skin. And, you know, we need to have a, a much more ambitious program of renewal that helps repair the huge loss of trust and faith in the fairness and, and strength of our, of our system. And that's going to require a sustained program of reforms. None of that's possible, of course, without restoring the capacity to govern the willingness to compromise across people of different views. And I think these are primarily political challenges. They're not economic challenges. There's things we can afford as a country. There are lots of ideas out there that we know would be very, very powerful and would work. It's not a problem of ideas or about resources. It's a problem of, of politics. Yeah. 
I remember explaining to someone after I got to Washington that there was very little low-hanging fruit. Some of the things where the economic answers were pretty simple were very politically challenging, and others, the economic issues were complex, and the politics was complex. But uh, you know, we've both seen that there's nothing more frustrating than knowing there's something right to be done and facing political constraints. And so I do think, I just really want to emphasize what you said. I think the key to so much is getting some of the dysfunction in our government behind us. And that really is going to take really strong leadership. Now, I want to now turn to some of the young people who are getting ready to go out into the world, find a job, you know, in, in the pandemic. Now, there's a terrific section in your book, Stress Test, which I think is really quite a remarkable book because it combines so many things. But when you talk about your early life and career, I recommend that everyone read that. But for those that haven't read it yet, let me close by asking you to reflect a bit about lessons from your career and how they might inform the advice you'd give to young people who are, who are looking to start a career today. Yeah. You know, again, I, I don't, I didn't really feel like I had a great initial plan. So I tried to just focus on, did I respect and trust the people I was working with? Was I learning something? And did I feel like I was doing something meaningful? You know, was it challenging? And did I have the chance to uh, make, uh, make a contribution? And I felt if I had a good mix of those things, then I would see where that took me. And I think if you don't have those things or the right mix of those things, it doesn't matter how good your plan is. And I think you should, you've got to focus on what matters to you, what gives you meaning, not so much on what the expectations are of society or your peers. So I don't, I don't have great wisdom on this. Uh, you know, you have to feel your way through it. I was always impressed with people and in some ways envious of people who knew what they want to do from the beginning and had chosen a cause or profession. I always felt I was without a profession, wasn't sure where this was going to take me. So given that, I tried to do the more it seemed a more and more simple thing, which is just to find things that I thought were meaningful, that I would learn from, and with people that I respected and, and trusted. Jim, that's a great note to end with, and thank you very much for being with us today. Great to talk to you, Hank. Very grateful. Thank you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.